Belgioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheesemaking. Using only natural ingredients and fresh, local Wisconsin milk, master cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses, guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioso, every cheese is a specialty. Nice to see you, Brett. I like when you're on the podcast. Well, you know, I'll come on whenever you ask. You just don't me very often. He wants to be invited more is what he's saying. Yes. <laughs> I, I show up if people ask. And you have interesting things to say. That's, you know, if not, I just shut up and I, I talk a lot. Well, we're talking about a whole specific menu segment today. So I feel like it's the perfect week to have yeah. Brett here because he it knows really more is. about that stuff than I do for sure. He's our expert. I've been doing this a little while. Just a little. And I feel like you're always watching the trends, Brett. You you write about trends every single month, but I feel like you've been following the coffee trend for a little bit. You recently wrote a feature about coffee and tea, and I feel like you, you've been seeing an increase in concepts that are using these in a different way. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm actually drinking coffee right now, but this is a automatic drip black coffee. <laughs> Nothing wrong Not with that. Um, <laughs> it was actually sent to me by a coffee company. So that's nice. Uh, I'd mention their name, but that seems like pandering. So I'm not going <laughs> to. Um, yeah. I mean, the, I think the most, the second to most recent feature I wrote was about using coffee as an alcohol substitute in spirit-free cocktails, which is something that's just sort of starting to happen a little tiny bit, but there are so many trends pointing to that happening because coffee consumption is up. Energy drink consumption is up. Coffee is in fact an energy drink. It's the OG energy drink along with tea. Uh, and spirit-free cocktails are up or mocktails as some people like to call them, but who, who they're not mocking anybody. <laughs> and if I also drink, hate the word mocktails. <laughs> you don't want to drink, don't drink. That's fine. That's awesome. I've never thought of it that way, but now I always will. <laughs> <laughs> Brett's changing people's minds forever. You know, the, the and, and it's normal now to go to a bar and for there to be uh, zero alcohol options, and that's yep. great. Exactly. So when Go I was everything. talking with Alicia about specialty beverages this week for First Bite, we were talking about how we feel about specialty beverages. And I said the only one I like is the peppermint uh, mocha from Starbucks, which Leanne introduced me to last year. You're uh, welcome. <laughs> but that's the only specialty beverage I like. I really am not a specialty beverage person. What about you guys? No. I like a good specialty beverage. I... um. I grew up in the land of Sonic Drive-In, which, Holly, have you ever been to a Sonic? No. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I was afraid of that. Okay. Um, so high school, you know, we would go to Sonic and get, like, flavored slushies and, like, that. I mean, I I'm sure they weren't the first to do that kind of thing, but they were certainly the first brand that I was familiar with that had, like, a heavy focus on that kind of thing. Um so, yeah, I'm a fan, I but I'm not like a, I need a special little beverage every day. You know, I am I need coffee every day. I don't need it to be fancy in any capacity. I also love, you know, a black drip coffee, a cold brew. Um, but if I'm at, you know, Dutch Bros when I'm in Texas, uh, if I'm near any of those specialty, if I'm ever near a Cosmics, which actually they're opening in Texas next year, so I will be near a Cosmics in the near future, Um Yes, you will find me getting a fancy little specialty beverage as a treat. Sonic, <laughs> Sonic might actually be the first uh, restaurant company, certainly the first major one to do that sort of infinite customization. And I did the math once. And if I did it right, you could have something like more than a quadrillion combinations with all of the different Sonic offerings. Wow. Um, I, I am also a creature of habit, so I always just went and got a grape slushie. Like, I knew I know what I like, and I get what I like. Um, but I also love the infinite customization thing. Is That's, that's like, my brother's kind of thing. He was one of those kids who would go to Taco Bell and put, like, six kinds of soda in his cup for some reason. Suicides were called them when I was a kid. Yes. 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 That's right. Um, yeah, I didn't. My niece actually <laughs> used to pour together Diet Dr. Pepper and Fresca which actually is 
Like, good. She served it at her bat mitzvah. Um, <laughs> oh, was that popular? I, I, I mean, it was popular with her. So, <laughs> you know, her bat mitzvah, she can serve it if she wants. Um, and this was based on the fact that those were my two favorite sodas at the time. And so my parents kept them in the house. And so my niece would just pour them together. Uh, even though I lived thousands of miles away, my parents loved me. So they liked <laughs> They were um, always ready I, for you to come home. Right. And But I avoid drinking calories if there's not alcohol in them. So I don't do a lot of specialty drinks myself. Uh, but the kids love it. And social media loves it. Uh, and uh, beverage experts will talk about how someone's customized drink is a part of their identity and sort of how they they express themselves out there to the world. Uh, so it's certainly a growing category. I don't think people are going to stop having things exactly the way they want it and customizing them to their tastes. Um, although there are times when... Um, it can gum up operations, you know, and there have been uh, social media circumstances in which, you know, some idiot on uh, whatever platform it is thinks of some elaborate, absurd drink, and then people all over the world force baristas to do that for them. And that's just, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't troll food service workers. It's It's impolite. Correct. <laughs> of, of nothing else, it's impolite. But it'll also make your drink a long time to get made. Like, it's not. <laughs> I remember last year we did um, menu hacks for Starbucks, secret menu hacks uh, mm-hmm. for a video. And it took a long time to get those drinks because they were so involved and um, they didn't taste that great. Uh, but they were very involved to make. And like the workers were fine with it because they were like there was nobody else in the store but like imagine when it's really busy to have to make all those customized drinks like that's not fun you know back in the at the height of mixology maybe 10 years ago when uh people bartenders made all these uh, elaborate cocktails and and often they were called mixologists not bartenders but they Developed all these elaborate cocktails before they figured out actually you can you can batch those complex cocktails and speed up service uh, very quickly. But what food service professionals and I would do when we went into places like that is we'd go in and order like a beer or a glass of wine or something and then order the fancy cocktail so that we could sit and have something to drink while, you know, the, the mixologist's magic was worked and we got our drink 20 minutes later. Smart. Right, so I feel like we've set the stage for what we're going to be talking about, which is uh, specialty drinks. Okay. I like having Brett on the podcast. He's just sassy enough. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Um, So, you know, Cosmics debuted this week, and we'll talk more about Cosmics as a concept next, but um, the brand focuses on specialty drinks. It has a huge drink menu. Um, and then Taco Bell also introduced a frozen coffee this week. So, I mean, we're seeing the bigger players get into the specialty drinks market in light of the fact that Dutch Bros is growing at an enormous rate. Um, they're seeing this competition. They're seeing their business being taken away, and they want to get in on it. And Chris Kepchinski, the CEO of McDonald's, said that they have a right to win the specialty beverage segment. Um, so what do you guys think about this in terms of the business of food? I mean, nobody has the right to win anything. You got to win, but McDonald's definitely has the advantage of uh, of uh, brand recognition and purchasing power and presence all over the planet. So, I mean, yeah, they 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 could definitely do really well uh, with specialty beverages, and you know, the giants have been getting in on this for a long time, uh, using different strategies. Coke spent a lot of time buying smaller brands and Pepsi developed some of its own, but you know, they're, even if they're owned by big giant conglomerates, they are branded as cute artisanal little companies, just as all, all the, the big breweries bought a bunch of the little craft breweries. 
but kept them and the, the products continue to, to be what they are. I was going to say good, but it really depends on what you like, whether they're good or not, but consistency. Yeah. Name, name recognition is definitely working in McDonald's favor. And for whatever reason, they played the media game just right last week. Um, which I mean, sure, but like it, the dominoes don't always fall where you think they're going to fall. But I felt like I couldn't turn anywhere to any consumer media without hearing about Cosmics. One of my best friends texted me the day after the announcement and asked if I had heard of this new brand from McDonald's, which the phrasing of that question always makes me laugh because like, yes, I have heard the biggest news in the restaurant industry, but, um, you know, and she lives in Phoenix. And so, you know, she's hearing about this brand, which is launching in Chicago and being tested in Dallas next year. Um, Like everybody is talking about this thing. Uh, And like, sure, McDonald's, like it has the power in the restaurant industry, the money, no doubt, and the name recognition. And I think that's kind of a perfect storm. Um, I hope it doesn't push out, you know, the Dutch bros and the, not that Dutch bros is a small company at this point by any means. I mean, they're a massive public company. Um, but they do what they do really well. And so I, you know, would hate to see McDonald's push them or anyone else out of the market. But I'm also excited and intrigued to see what McDonald's, I mean, I think this is the first time McDonald's has like launched its own totally separate brand. They have a history of purchasing other brands. They used to own Chipotle, Donato's, a variety of others. But I think this is the first one that they've like created from scratch other than McDonald's. Uh, so I'm curious to watch it unfold and see what the long-term strategy is here. I mean, there was the, is the McCafe brand, but sure. I don't, yeah, I don't know that they opened any actual McCafe's. I should yeah, I don't know. Or if that's just an in-store, that's a good question, but well, it, we, it could be like that thing where, you know, when someone is asking a question on a podcast and can't think of something, but when you're listening to it, you're like, I know the answer. That's probably what's happening right now to a few of our listeners. That they- Sorry to <laughs> all the listeners about the very obvious thing that I obviously am not thinking of right now, but you'll just have to email us and let me know. Please, please write in and let us know. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, like right. when we talk about Cosmics, we're talking about the fact that McDonald's is creating this whole new brand. And what I found really interesting is that the people that I'm seeing go to Cosmics on the internet are not the same customer as the customer at McDonald's. And so I think that that's really interesting that they are trying to go to this whole other audience versus just their core demographic um, because otherwise they would have just added the drinks to their own menu. But I think they saw that there was a space for a different consumer that isn't a McDonald's client who wants something artisanal, who wants something from a cool, young brand. And I think that their legacy kind of hindered them on entering that market as McDonald's. And so I think this Cosmics was a great opportunity for them to branch out and say, we can have a cool, young brand for millennials and Gen Z who want these things but it's still under the McDonald's umbrella, so it has the same marketing powers. I mean, you might also be possibly underestimating the breadth of the McDonald's demographic. A lot of people go to McDonald's, even if they don't talk about it, you know. They swing (laughs) in and pick up a quarter pounder with cheese and and some fries and a large Diet Coke or whatever. Um, And as our colleague Alicia Kelso has reported, Gen Alpha the generation after Gen Z, obviously, the kids these days, McDonald's resonates with them. And that is, like, people like to sort of laugh at McDonald's as kind of an old legacy brand, but they know what they're doing, and they've been successful for a really long time for a lot of reasons. And um, I, Cosmics could do really well. Also, young people are interested it seems in nostalgia although it's not really nostalgia because like they're into things that they never knew that never existed you know things from the 50s and 60s that they can't possibly remember because they were gone by the time uh these people were born but they're still in into old-timey stuff i remember a few years ago 
I saw a millennial spinning uh, thread, like she had a spindle and was spinning in an airport. So, like, cool, you do that. And I, I, if I invested in things, I think I'd invest in, in like, wooden blocks. Because kids, like, they're, they're were born into technology. They're not impressed with it. But physical, tactile things, I, I think if they're not already making a comeback, we'll make a comeback. And I think they are, just like cats like to sit in boxes. Kids like to play with block. <laughs> it's exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't want to write off, you know, the work that McDonald's has done in marketing, specifically Gen Z over the last few years. Um, <clears throat> you know, but there is a difference between going to a brand to get the Kerwin Frost meal because you're a big fan and going to a brand, you know, three times a week because it's your go-to. Um, although Brett's right. It is a lot of people's go-to and they just don't uh, talk about it much. But the other interesting thing that McDonald's is doing is filling in a day part that it's been missing. Um, McDonald's has a really strong morning crowd. Um, their breakfast is very well known. Coffee, easy to pop through the drive through Obviously, lunch and dinner, like huge for McDonald's. But there's that sweet spot in the middle of the afternoon where no one is thinking, I know what I need right now and I know where to get it. And that place is McDonald's. Um, but one of the things that a lot of people want in that mid-afternoon is a little treat. And a specialty beverage might fill that need for them. And so I think they're really trying to get uh, more of a customer flow in the like 2, 3 o'clock p.m. day part. Um, and that is, you know, a hole that Cosmics can maybe fill for them. And it's also interesting that a lot of the menu items are breakfast items that they are selling uh, in the afternoon, which is less of a financial investment by the customer, something everybody craves all day long, or most people crave, and probably comparatively low food cost, which uh, drinks are too. So uh, these could be highly profitable ventures if they if they get the traffic that I think they'll get. Well, and they have no fryers there. So they're also eliminating that complexity from what a traditional McDonald's has. Um, what do you guys think about the Taco Bell test? Do you think that they, they're, so they're testing a frozen coffee, which I had to ask Alicia what a frozen coffee was because I was a little confused. Um, I imagined like a 7-Eleven like slushy, but with a coffee flavor in it. It's yeah. like a frappuccino. Yeah. 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 So I I had to ask, but she knows I know. <laughs> I know now. Um and so uh we have this test from Taco Bell, but Taco Bell tests a lot of things. Um they tested gelato earlier this year. Uh they're they're really good with recognizing trends. And I think that this is another example of them saying we we know this is happening and we see it and we want to get it on the market. I mean, do you guys think that they could possibly get in on this trend? Sure. I mean, actually, Taco Bell is testing frozen coffee at one place and a coffee shake at another location. And I don't know if it's a milkshake. I asked them, I said, is it a milkshake or is it some sort of non-dairy thing? And the response was... It's a shake. So. Thanks. You know, <laughs> I guess if it becomes more widely available and you can go online and look up the the nutritionals, maybe do that if that's a concern of yours. Or just drink it because it probably tastes good. And and then I maybe would add a shot of, a shot of rum. And then if I'm drinking my calories, I also get alcohol. There you go. You know, Taco Bell. Go ahead. <laughs> Taco Bell itself is no stranger to a specialty beverage. They came out with the Mountain Dew Baja Blast in 2004, and it's been one of their like primary like menu drivers for 20 years now. Um, but you know, they've never been a specialty beverage place. It's just been like, hey, while you're here, get this kooky thing we made up. Um. Yeah, this test is kind of interesting to me because usually when Taco Bell comes out with tests, it's something like a grilled cheese quesadilla or something else that makes me go, what? That's bonkers. 
Uh, and they announced this week that they were testing, you know, frozen coffee and shakes. And I said, hmm, yeah, that makes sense. That's kind of what we're all doing out here, right? Um, so it's an interesting twist. Um, I am curious to see, because uh, the other thing about Taco Bell's tests and stuff like this is that they frequently test or put out an LTO for like six weeks and then that thing disappears and you don't hear about it again unless somebody starts kicking up a fuss on social media and then they bring it back. Um, so I'm curious to see if that's what becomes of these drinks or if this is something that they might actually consider putting on the menu, you know, nationwide. And I feel like they do have like some frozen beverages already. I'm trying to think of like whether they already have like the equipment for this in all the stores or if it would be an investment. Um, but I feel like there's like a frozen Baja Blast or something that you can get anywhere. But, uh, you know, it's just another thing to think about. Yeah. So anyway, I am I'm I'm intrigued by this one, but not for the usual reason. I'm intrigued by Taco Bell's menu stuff. (laughs) But I'm sure they're great. It's interesting that sometimes a chain will test something and then they'll roll it out and then they don't talk that much about it. Like McDonald's tested lemonade earlier this year. Mm. Which I know because I'm going through all the old menu trackers for all of our year in review stuff. And uh, I reached out to them to ask what happened to their lemonade. And they haven't gotten back to me yet. But thank goodness for Alicia and her son who likes McDonald's. Because she confirmed that actually they they definitely have lemonade at least at the place they went to. The McDonald's they went to recently uh, in Louisville because her son ordered it. So... There's some lemonade at McDonald's. Maybe I should switch. Lemonade was a whole trend. We did a whole gallery just on like new lemonades this year. It was a yeah, whole correct. trend six months ago. And now I can't remember the last time we talked about lemonade. <laughs> no, now we're talking about it again. I, yeah. I, You're I, welcome, I, everybody. Speaking of other trendy things, when that was going on, I asked ChatGPT to write a lemonade story. And, you know, it wasn't bad. It, I mean, it wouldn't, uh, it wasn't up to snuff for what we do, but honestly... For like Parade Magazine, not to crap on Parade, although actually, yeah, I guess I am. Uh, You know, it was like, hi, lemonade, blah, blah, a little bit of history. Here's some recipes. Why do you need a lemonade recipe? I don't know. But I guess people do. And ChatGPT had them in its its, um, resource bank. So, okay. If you want a little shallow lemonade story, AI can take care of it. If you want a good lemonade story, you got to read our publications. <laughs> yeah, good plug, Brett. Good plug. So what I think is interesting about this test for Taco Bell is that they've really been pushing breakfast the past year, year and a half. And I think that a frozen coffee, while, you know, we talked about specialty beverages being that afternoon, I think that it's also part of a morning day part because it, it is a coffee drink and people are still, people still like their sweet beverages in the morning. When I go to Starbucks at work, I see a lineup of sweet beverages and people like them at all times of the day. And I think that this is another way for Taco Bell to be entering the breakfast market or pushing its breakfast. Um, You know, they had those commercials with Pete Davidson with their breakfast. They were spending a lot of ad money on it. Um, And I think that this is another step in that direction to bolster their breakfast business. I love Taco Bell for breakfast, though, so I'm not not really the person to uh, bash Yeah, that's a good point, Holly. And people drink cold coffee all day long. It's the makes up the bulk of sales, like ninety percent at Dutch Bros, but like three quarters of of sales at uh, at least of coffee sales at Starbucks are cold. Also, very popular. I drink a, a lot too. Well, there are a lot of memes online about people drinking iced coffee through the winter, like people in snow, like with big coats on and in the middle of a snowstorm with an iced coffee in their hand. Like, uh, so it's a thing that like people year round, all times of the day, like iced drinks. That's the new Starbucks um, holiday beverage this year is an iced beverage. Um, I think that's not common for them. They usually have hot beverages, but the newest one they have this year is iced. So clearly everybody's listening to what consumers are saying and they are reacting to it, which I think is good for the industry that they are listening and hopping on this trend. And it's probably going to work for all of them. I mean, how could it not? I don't think, I think there's a huge market for these beverages and that there's plenty of room for everyone. I mean, we've seen a bunch of brands pop up that are doing these specialty beverages that are growing. Um, 
not just Dutch bros, but we've seen other ones that are coming up. So there's a real market for it. And I don't think anybody's taking share of anything else. I mean, Starbucks is still seeing record revenues. Dutch bros is hoping to get 4,000 units in the next few years. Like it's a booming market. And I, I liken it to the chicken market that is also seeing this huge boom. It's been building over the past few decades, but the past few years, we've really seen a chicken boom. We're seeing a lot of brands introduce chicken. We're seeing new chicken brands come up. Um, so I think that people are just gravitating towards certain things now in strong numbers, and we're seeing the industry react, which is good. Specialty soda, too, like, mm-hmm. uh, like Swig, Swig, which I believe Sam had on his podcast uh, mm-hmm. in the past couple of weeks. Um, yep. people, are, people are into that. And it's, you know, again, operationally pretty easy to do. And highly profitable people spend money on their drinks. So great. And I mean, I'm just thinking about my own neighborhood in Brooklyn, which is, it's a bougie neighborhood, but the number of coffee houses is like, they're in the past eight months or so, two coffee houses opened around the corner from each other in my neighborhood. And, and there are, I don't know, another dozen within New York walking distance, which is to say, you know, a mile. A ton. <laughs> yep. Multiple locations of single brands and all little specialty coffee houses. Hey, there's also a couple of Starbucks and a Dunkin', obviously. Obviously, there has to be those as well. Yeah. I mean, Starbucks are everywhere. Yes. Um, okay, so moving on to Boston Market. This is kind of a bummer story um, because Boston Market was looking for a turnaround in 2020. Um, but then they were purchased by Jay Pandya and he does not have a good track record. Um, he filed for bank, he bought corner bakery cafe, then filed for bankruptcy and now it no longer exists. Um, he himself filed for personal bankruptcy, uh, last week, um, mainly because he has so many lawsuits against him and several that have been finalized and he has to pay all this money and he doesn't have it. So he declared bankruptcy. Um, and the next logical step, according to Joanna Fantosi, who said she could be his unofficial lawyer, um, is that they should, that uh, Boston Market should declare bankruptcy as well to get out of paying all these legal fees. Um, they, they're they on the hook for not paying suppliers. They're on the hook for not playing, paying employees. Um, the New Jersey Department of Labor shut down all of the New Jersey Boston Markets uh, earlier this year because they weren't paying employees. They had to pay them like $600,000 in back pay. Um, the brand is really struggling. Um, they were looking for a turnaround. They were bought by the wrong person. They've kind of been heading downhill. What do you guys think is next for this brand? I don't I mean, know. I mean, <laughs> sorry, go ahead, everyone. I was just going to say, you know, when all of this was happening over the summer and we talked about it on this podcast, I said, I think it'll be gone within a year. And I stand by my previous prediction. Nothing about this week's news changes any of my opinions whatsoever. I mean, it's sad because Boston Market, to me at least, seems seemed like a nice brand. And, and they were ahead of their time uh, in what used to be called home meal, home meal replacement. Now it's just called takeout and delivery. I mean, and, and is super common, but they were ahead of themselves on that and they didn't do really well. And they, I mean, they've just had so many ups and downs, mostly downs. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't want anyone. Well, I was gonna say, I don't want anyone to go out of business, but actually this guy, that would be fine. He should go out of business. He's uh, personally and also his business. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Come on. he I mean, he just seems like a charlatan. Well, and why does he keep buying businesses if he's just going to run them into the ground? Or why are people letting, like, why hasn't the government caught up with him or something? I mean, there's something to be said about the fact that he is just buying these companies and running them into the ground and he has no money because he's not paying anything. Like, it's wild. But I feel like the thing about Boston Market is people love it. Like, I feel like it actually is popular with consumers. It has a fan base and it just didn't have the right leadership. And then this took it a step further, but it's a shame because Boston market is really popular with a lot of people. It was a good deal. You could get 
chicken like we had a whole chicken there like it was it was a good thing for the country to have this kind of a brand (laughs) it also had you know it was a great catering business i mean when i worked in a traditional newsroom 15 years ago we would get boston market you know for thanksgiving and christmas for everyone who had to work those holidays um, and we were certainly not the only ones. So it, like the timing of this is also a giant bummer because it started going downhill in 2020, which was really like right before ripe opportunity for catering businesses. Like, man, in someone else's hands, this could have been a very different story. But alas, here we are. And as for why the government hasn't caught up with him, that sounds like a question for the government. Holly, you want to call him up? I'm sure they'd be right on it. Give us a letter. Take care of a lot of that. I mean, you can get a, a roast chicken at a supermarket for not very much money, and you know they have a deli counter with all sorts of great sides and stuff. So that's but but Boston Market could also have played in that game, and they did. But bad management, and you know, I'm not a finance expert, but you know, if you are just a cynical bastard i'll say and you know you offer to buy something for cheap knowing that you're just gonna like break it into pieces and and exploit the workers and and you know be awful the you know the the money people can come out ahead which is just dark and depressing Well, so I spoke with um, Cowboy Chicken this week, which is another brand that sells rotisserie chickens, and they are seeing great business. They took the catering uh, great lengths during COVID. They did really well, and they were saying that their rotisserie chickens taste very different from a Costco chicken. While the Costco chickens may be bigger, these have like a smokier flavor. They have more seasonings on them. And they were saying that consumers, once they try them, are really into the rotisserie chickens that come from these more specialty brands than the ones that come from the supermarket, which can be dry a lot of the times. Um, Let's be real. Uh, They sit in that heated thing all day and they are pretty dry, but, you know, they're a great deal. And so, but they were saying that, that, they are seeing a really big business and they don't even consider uh, places like Costco or BJ's a competitor at this point. And I feel like Boston Market was probably feeling the same way before they started their downturn, um, that they were thinking we're more specialty. We, we cater to a different audience. People who get Boston Market are not the same people who are going to get it at a food store. Um, so I've been to a Boston Market once. So uh, I can see that. Surprising. Well, I went, we were in DC for a field trip and there was a Boston market in like a food court and I went there. There's a Sonic on Long Island, at least one, if you want to go. There's actually, I think there's one in like Bushwick now. Like, I think there's one in Brooklyn. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Wow. Interesting. We live in completely different parts of Brooklyn from Bushwick, so it would be convenient. Uh, Yeah, I'm never going to go there, but I think it exists. (laughs) Is it a walk-up window? I don't know. Yeah, I never been. Bushwick. Uh, Bushwick, by the way, is a is a great neighborhood. It's just far away from where I live. All right, so Brett, why don't you tell us about your interview? We have you on the podcast today, so you can give us a little preview of what you talked about. Uh, Matthew Dofker uh, is the chef of uh, what's called Local Kitchens. It's a um, series of food halls that. Um, bring in local uh, local producers, local operators. Uh, but then Matt works with them to develop menu items that work specifically well for local kitchens. Belgioioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheese making. Using only natural ingredients and fresh local Wisconsin milk, Master Cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses, guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioioso, every cheese is a specialty. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. You must be Matthew Rudofker. Yes, that's correct. It's great to meet you. Great to meet you. And you are the... uh, 
culinary director of a food hall in the Bay Area, right? Uh, yeah, the te- te- we we try to call ourselves either like a micro food hall, but uh, I run our culinary department among uh, some other fun things for the company. So, what does that? It's a it's a micro food hall. How 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 is it micro? So. A lot of times when you think of a food hall, you're walking into a pretty expansive space with a lot of different stalls of different restaurants that are each their own independent operation. For us in local kitchens, our real estate really is a lot of the same ones that a lot of fast casual restaurants are looking for in, you know, really great suburbs across America, corner corner lots, um, freestanding buildings, parking lot. And it's really the similar square footage anywhere between 1,500 to 2,000 square feet. And we're executing the food for anywhere from five to eight different menus and cuisines from a singular kitchen versus having multiple stalls. I see. So it's it's it looks like one restaurant? It's one, it's one restaurant. It's one okay. kitchen. And, you know, there's a selection of dishes from different restaurants that we partner with chefs that we partner with and we create menus that are different cuisines different price points all coming from one kitchen and do i order them all from the same counter yep you would you can either order off of the website off of our app in store and you can basically browse you know any most of our kitchens have anywhere from 65 to about 100 different dishes that range cuisines from you know traditional mexican fried chicken burgers pizza we have you know some asian as well um so you're really able you know especially if you're thinking of being the suburban family or a group of school kids you know i can go to one place i can open one app i can basically order everything for everyone at once and not have to think about you know how am i going to take care of everybody's either dietary or cuisine desires so I I'm guessing most people order in advance, but what what does it look like when you walk in? If you have I don't know 400, 500 different menu items that you can order at one counter, how do how do they know what to order? It really looks like any sort of fast casual restaurant that you walk into. We have kiosks that you can order from. We have managers that you can talk to. We have menu boards. Most of the menus are really you know mostly in that sixty five to hundred item. But there's modifiers, there's options to build it, customize it, things like that. Um, so it's, it's really not too dissimilar from any sort of fast casual experience. It's just that we're really trying to give a breadth of selection. So why don't you talk us through all of these different options that I can get when I walk into local kitchens? Yeah, of course. So we, we have two kind of menus that we really do. We, we partner with some restaurants. And we execute a selection of their greatest hits. So one of our partners is the Melt. It's a well-known, um, you know, burger concept in the Bay Area. They also do griddled sandwiches and mac and cheese. So we partner with them where, you know, we're executing some of their greatest hits out of our kitchen. We also partner with um, a great pizza company out here called Square Pie Guys, where they do Detroit-style pizza. So you could also come and, you know, kids could split a pizza, dad could get a burger, we also partner with a restaurant group called Nopalito. And what's unique about them that we did is we actually developed a menu together that is unique to local kitchens, is only available in local kitchens. Um, so Nopalito is like a, a little bit more of a higher end Mexican restaurant. They do authentic Mexican uh, locally sourced ingredients. But we collaborated with their chef Gonzalo and their owner Allison to really develop a program that allows them to expand Nopalito and expand the Nopalito brand, but serving the kind of food and price points that, you know, the suburban family is really looking for. I see. Uh, And also you recently opened an Andy Ricker concept, right? Yeah, we partnered with Andy to do a selection of, you know, some things that are inspired by some of his bestsellers at Pock Pock, but really are dishes that have a ton of flavor, are uniquely interesting, um, that are rooted in a lot of, um, you know, regional concepts in Thailand. Uh, So we were able to sort of bring that to our kitchens as something where, you know, for our our regular guests and the people who have been dining with us for a while, they get to experience something new and different that they might have had to either, you know, one, travel to Thailand to experience or maybe go to 
a major metropolitan. So what's really exciting about that and some other partnerships and collaborations is we're really able to bring exciting food to these neighborhoods that you know you really wouldn't find these kind of things in. And where where is Local Kitchens located? Uh, so we're based in the Bay Area. We have 11 locations, um, three in Sacramento, and then eight throughout the Bay, ranging anywhere from Lafayette all the way down to Los Gatos, Campbell, Cupertino. Uh, and then we'll be opening early next year a new location in San Bruno. Nice going. And so uh, is each location, does it offer the same uh, menu items and, and represent the same restaurants? Uh, no, they don't right now. There are some staples that are across most of our locations. Most of our locations, you'll find Nopalito, you'll find the Melt, you'll find Square Pie Guys. Uh, but then we have some special unique things in different in different kitchens, whether because we can bring something that's interesting from a geographical perspective or we're piloting new exciting items that are starting in a few kitchens. But, you know, if the guests are really loving it, we'll bring it to the rest. And how, how do you find the... Uh concepts that you want to represent in local kitchens or do you do they approach you do you track them down how does that work it's both ways it really it really starts about thinking about the guest you know what is the guest asking for for us what do what are people wanting to eat what is the food that they like what are the price points that they want and then using that to take a lens for whether we're trying to find a partner who fits that cuisine that price point or if it's something where like, hey, we want to work with a chef like Andy Ricker or Gonzalo from Nopalito and actually build that menu for the guests. So we're, we're really just starting with, you know, one, what does the guest really want and how do we deliver them that product? How do you figure out what your guests want? I mean, a lot of it's really just talking to them. You know, you can't really be talking to the guests and asking them. At the same time, you know, we're looking at sales data. We're looking at product mix. We're looking at third party um, you know, delivery ratings for brands, third-party sales mix, you know, what are people ordering with frequency? So, you know, it, it's got to be that blend of, you know, what does the data say for people's habits? And then what are they demanding from you in person or through, uh, you know, feedback cards? Is there often a uh, a contrast between what the data indicates and what your customers actually order? Yeah, uh, there's a couple of those. I would say the biggest one, to be honest, is healthy food. You know, we get we have healthy food in the kitchen, and we do, and we definitely have, we're right now we're in a big push on developing a lot of new salads within all of our different menus. But when it comes to then looking at the sales, a lot of things that are selling are burgers and pizza. So there's there there's a very loud voice of we want healthy, and they do want healthy, but then it's really dominated by things that are not necessarily the most healthy. Yeah, I mean, I, this has been going on for years, and and I've I've seen data that indicates that like if you put a menu item on the menu that people think is healthy, they are going to like you more. They're more likely to go to your restaurant, but then they don't order the healthy item. So they're like, I am so glad this restaurant has a salad or whatever. I'm really glad about that. And I'm going to order that next time. But right now, what I need is a cheeseburger, a pizza, or whatever it is. And the other part of it is thinking about the veto vote. You know, like, I'll be honest, I definitely care about health. And if I'm going out with a group of friends and we don't go to, and we're going to a restaurant that doesn't have something healthy, even if it's a small part of the product mix, even if it's not necessarily the most healthy, but it's like, it's healthier than the rest, I'm probably not going to want to go. So for us, it's important that when we, build our menus we're also thinking about the veto vote when it comes to you know both what am i craving and i want to eat what are my dietary restrictions and what are my health conscious thoughts right so if if you have if you and seven friends are going somewhere your healthy menu item might not look like it's a whole bunch of sales but you brought in seven other people who wouldn't have been able to go in if they hadn't had something for you for example exactly that's cool um so what are, are, are there super hyper local concepts that you use that don't fit across the whole system? Or is it, is it more of a uh, testing a new concept that you introduce it to one place and, and not necessarily the others? Or what's your thought process when you mix up the, the different uh, uh, offerings at different locations? Part of it is still us learning, you know, learning what 
different guests wants, different regions want, and especially as we refine our real estate strategy and looking towards, you know, continued growth, like, you know, we've, we've opened 11 restaurants in three years, which for most restaurant groups is a pretty crazy thing, especially when you're brand new. So it's really refining that playbook. The, the second thing, which is, which is pretty common with a lot of restaurant groups is, is when you're bringing an LTO or bringing a new menu item that maybe is flexing a different culinary or kitchen operations muscle that you haven't flexed before is to just test it. Make sure it's working. Are the cooks happy? Is the guest happy? Is the food quality coming out the way you want? Dial it in, perfect it before you just, you know, throw something in 11 kitchens that you haven't really dialed in quite enough yet. Yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, And how did you get involved in local kitchens? Uh, Very strangely, uh, John and Monday, who are the founders, uh, were looking for someone who knew restaurants weren't necessarily sure who or what they were looking for. Uh, We kind of got connected through a mutual friend that I had when I was in New York, uh, who was also sort of in the fitness food world that Monday is very connected to. Uh, They were probably looking for someone not quite with the level of experience that I have, but we hit it off. It made sense. We had a strong sort of cultural philosophical connection with John and Monday and decided, you know, hey, let's let me move across the country and give this a go. So what is your background? Yeah, my background is restaurants. I mean, I've worked in everything from fast casual to three mission star, uh, originally from Philadelphia, got into restaurants from a very young age. Uh, you know, one of the people who mentored me, Mark Vetri, uh, gave me a job as a kid who's 15, knocking on his door, asking if he could come after school and work for free and learn and uh turned 18 moved to new york uh worked in a range of restaurants from uh blue hill stone barns to danielle uh made my way to momofuku uh, i was with momofuku for nine years uh was everything from single restaurant chef multi-property chef uh by the time i left there I was the senior director of operations uh moved back to philadelphia where i was the vp of operations for uh the Schulson collective where we also had a wide variety of restaurants, everything from traditional Italian to sushi to Pan-Asian to Italian-American to modern American. Uh, Then now with local kitchens. So this isn't your first time managing multiple concepts. So that's handy. No, it's uh, a big thing for my career was but like from when I started as a cook was, you know, I wanted to, to learn a lot about different cuisines, different food. And, you know, worked at Italian, worked at seafood, worked at, you know, progressive restaurants, uh, you know, did some stints in Europe at places like the Fat Duck. Um, And then that kind of migrated to the restaurant groups, you know, even within Momofuku, you know, while there's a Korean undertone, it it was still very different restaurants, different cuisines. Um, And then similarly with Shulson Collective, you know, a wide range of, of styles of restaurants from, you know, quick service sushi to, you know, fine dining steakhouse. Yeah, is is Mark Fetri mostly? I mean, I I love all of his food, but it's it's mostly like Italian-ish, right? Yeah, it's really you know traditional regional Italian. That's definitely where I got my start. I probably moved from a cuisine perspective very far away from that over the years, uh, but that's definitely where I got my start. Although Italian and California food are kind of related in that it's all about the ingredients, which is oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean. You see the parallels in the wine industry as well between California and Italy. Uh, so there, there's a lot of things between culture, agriculture, style of dining that you see parallels between those two. Makes sense. Um, so what is your job? Like, uh, is a lot of it um, just sort of blocking and tackling and managing supply chain and all of that? Because you you do a bit of product development, but you have chefs with their own concepts who also are a big part of that, I assume. Yeah, since, I mean, essentially I was the first employee with the company, so I've worn quite a few hats and it's really been, uh, what does the company need me to do at many times? You know, my my primary focus is what is the food vision for our company? And that means what is the menu? You know, that's a combination of working with our partners and what items do we sell from their menus and who are the new partners that we're bringing? And then also our projects where we're developing new menus, whether it be the one we did with Andy, the one we did with Nopalito. We have a few that we're working on right now. We're going to be bringing a new fried chicken menu to all of our locations next month. We've been putting a lot of work into that. 
Uh, so, and that includes supply chain as well. So really like what is the food vision for local kitchens? And you're three years old and still evolving, it sounds like, which is cool and fun. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that, oh, go ahead. Uh, so what are the the more popular concepts at all of the different locations? I mean, it's really not too dissimilar from what are those popular cuisines that people spend a lot of money on. The mm -hmm. melt, burgers, sandwiches, mac and cheese, square pie guys doing really interesting and unique Detroit style pizza. Nopalito, which is, you know, sort of our Mexican taqueria. Um, those are those are three that are really big. The next one that we're bringing in is we we currently work with Proposition Chicken, who is a really well-known restaurant in the Bay Area for a long time. But what we've been working with them is designing a new menu that we're going to launch at all of our locations to sort of create a fried chicken menu that's based off of what we're seeing a lot of demand from our guests when they ask like what kind of a fried chicken menu do they want out of us which is you know a little bit more california a lot of more fresh vegetables fresh ingredients vibrant flavors um the style of chicken we built has a little bit more like health conscious note to it it doesn't feel you know fatty and greasy um so you know i really think that's going to do very well for us and i'm very excited to get that menu live how do you develop a healthy fried chicken what what, what so I think it lighter, et cetera? To, to me, it, it goes back to the feeling of being lighter. You know, when something's coated in multiple layers of flour and egg, it's a different experience than um, if something is used a more lighter coating that's not necessarily absorbing oil as much, that we're using cleaner oil, we're making sure we're using good oil, we're filtering our oil, using more fresh spices, fresh ingredients, bright slaw. So it's, it's one, it's, are all the ingredients around it bright and fresh and high in flavor versus more, you know, darker tones. Um, and then the chicken itself just being fried in a way that's going to carry less oil and is going to be, you know, in generally when you eat it, you know, you shouldn't feel like you want to take a nap after. Right. And so is it going to be mostly bone in or boneless or what, what, what's this, are you still working on that? Start, the starting of the menu is going to be focused around uh, boneless, skinless uh, fried sandwiches. Uh, we'll be using breasts and tenders. And then we're also going to be offering um, roasted, like a classic sort of roasted chicken that'll be bone in, like a half roasted chicken. Uh, we're continuing to develop wings and bone in chicken. That'll probably be something that we'll bring to the future. But what we've seen from guests is like what they, our guests, the people who are coming to us, the thing they care about is a fried chicken sandwich. That's what they want. That's what they're craving. So we're really focused on how do we bring that at the highest quality possible? And then we can look at bringing other things in the future once we've really delivered on that. Yeah, that seems to be what all Americans want these days, a fried chicken sandwich. I, I think they learned during uh, lockdown that burgers don't really travel all that well, but fried chicken does. And so they've they've taken to it. And Yeah, I think a lot of, go ahead. Oh, and, and are, are, is it a lot of the flavors that you might expect, like Nashville Hot, which is everywhere, and Buffalo and things like that? Well, it's really based upon, um, you know, starting with the flavor profile of what Ari, who's the, the chef and founder of Proposition Chicken, they use there. So it's a lot, it's, it's very much American. So it's a lot of the similar sort of spices like paprika, black pepper, um, you know, a little coriander and cumin, like the, those spices, nothing that's overwhelming, but giving you that like little tingle on the tongue. Um, and then kind of playing around with different things that are a little more California. It's like one of our sandwiches, we do what we're calling an herby slaw. So it's kind of like a riff on a ranch and green goddess with slaw that has different vegetables, a lot of crunch, really fresh, um, pickled red onions. Uh, we're doing a spicy version where we're doing um, a honey habanero aioli. So it's, you know, got those things that you might see from, hot chicken, but with a little bit of different flavor profiles. Um, and then what's really fun is we're, we, we put a candied jalapeno on it. So it gives it this really sort of interesting twist or riff that you probably wouldn't, that you're really not going to see from, you know, a, a fast food restaurant because we're just putting a more chef driven lens on it. Uh, and, and, but nonetheless fits into sort of the flavor profiles that people are looking for, like spicy and sweet together in a yeah. candied jalapeno. But I, I think I, 
interrupted you as you were going to say something else about fried chicken sandwiches that might have been interesting. Do you remember what it was? Uh, I mean, I think in general, what we're really trying to do is I look at the fried chicken market and, you know, you have Chick-fil-A, which is obviously great, but it's definitely a down market product. You have Shake Shack that's a little bit above that, but still is not really going up. And then you kind of have this big void. And then you go to the chef driven where, you know, you, it's probably a sandwich, you know, you might eat once a month, you know, it's got really bold flavors. It's really unique, but there's this big void of like, what is lack of a better term, you know, ideally better than fast food and has really unique flavors that I could eat once a week, multiple times a week. I bring my family after the baseball game, but it's not this chef driven thing. That's like, honestly, in my opinion, sometimes it's a little too polarizing and while amazingly delicious is not something you crave with frequency. So we're really trying to thread that needle with all of the menus that we're developing to really get in between where it's still chef driven, but something I can eat, you know, multiple times a week. And I would think almost everything that people order is for takeout. They're not eating it in the restaurant. The majority of our business is takeout. Some of our locations do have a small amount of indoor dining, but about 70 plus percent of our business is takeout. And is that something you take into consideration when you're developing menu items? You know, that it should travel well, it shouldn't drip down your arm when you're driving, that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when we do tastings for, um, you know, for our teams, when we're developing menus, whether we're doing a tasting for our internal leadership team, whether we're doing a tasting with our partners, you know, we have a saying is like, we don't serve fresh food. That's not what our guest is going to eat. That's not what we should be making judgment on. So, you know, nothing would be put in someone's mouth during a tasting that's under 30 minutes, hasn't been sitting on a counter in a box for 30 minutes. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of experiences where guests are going to come in. It's going to be, they're going to order, they're going to wait, it's made, it's handed to them, and they're going to sit down and eat it right away. But the majority of our, our business, it's not going to be consumed for at least 15 minutes. So that should reflect in the, in the development process. And how do you do that? Do you just make it and then put it in a box and walk away and, you know, I don't know, text your friends, whatever. But, and Put a time, make some, put a timestamp on it, make another, put a timestamp on it, make another, do 15 minutes, do 30 minutes, do 45 minutes, do an hour, do an hour and a half, do two hours, then microwave it. Is it still good microwave? Um, you know, you, you really have to think about like, what is, what are the different paths your guest is going to do? Um, you know, and I think a great example of that is like, why does uh, Detroit style pizza do so well with us? It's a dense product. It travels well. It retains a lot of heat. It has cheese that's caramelized and baked into the crust. You know, it's able to carry temperature, flavor, and texture for a much longer time than, you know, a Neapolitan, Neapolitan style pizza. Um, so we really have to think very heavily about that within our business model. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that, but it makes sense. You want something kind of hefty and, and bready for your pizza. I mean, I like cold pizza the next day, but it's a different thing. It is, yeah, it's a totally different thing. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. Like, I, I look at a lot of our quality reviews and performance, and there's, with our business, there's an interesting thread around the natural density of a product and its quality and temperature ratings. So, you know, when we're developing or thinking what we're serving, like, I keep that in the back of my mind, knowing that, you know, that directly translates to how happy the guest is. Sure. So I, I imagine that wasn't something you had to worry about much when uh, working for uh, the Scholson Collective or Danielle. So like, how did, how did you end up developing your testing process once you got to local kitchens? Uh, I mean, I would say it started with the Scholson Collective with okay. COVID. Um, you know, we, we closed for about a week and then probably like everybody else reevaluated you know, once we knew this was going to be a lot longer than, you know, we all thought it was going to be in the beginning. And, you know, we started out of Double Knot and Sampan, which are, are really high volume Asian restaurants. One's sushi, one's sort of more Pan-Asian. Um, and we opened for delivery, you know, having no idea what we're doing. We're just putting the menu that we serve on delivery and we're going to put it in boxes. And we got our butts handed to us and we really had to learn how to change our business and how to design the food and how to adjust for what, you know, became the new reality for months to a year of delivery. Um, and that really then translated over to working, you know, with local kitchens where still learning and evolving 
you know, looking at what really works for the guests, what are they saying about the food, and then breaking that down to, you know, its ingredients and its nature to try to have a deeper understanding of how we need to construct things for this type of guest and the nature of how the product is traveling, you know, from cook to guest mouth. That sounds like a fun process. It is. You get beat up a little bit when you make a mistake. Guests don't like that, uh, but you learn, you fix it, you make it better. Yeah, I mean, that's what working in a restaurant is. What, what's what's your favorite part about your job? Yeah, I think it's the opportunity to work with so many different, um, you know, chefs, restaurant people. You know, it's it's exciting when you're always have your hand in a different dish and a different cuisine. It's frankly extremely educational. Um, and then working with the cooks where they're learning about, you know, new ingredients, new techniques, things they never heard about before. You know, I think we're we're attracting a lot of talent and people who, you know, are really almost going back to school because there's so much new things they're getting to learn about. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, that's that's fun, especially in a generation that's dominated by social media, when you want to always be doing something different. You know, we kind of tap into that a little bit. Well, and cooks traditionally don't have much of an attention span anyway. So I guess it's good that uh, and younger people have even less of one. Uh, so I guess it's good that you get them to try so many different things. Um, Absolutely. Uh, if I wanted to have my restaurant in a in a local kitchen's uh, space, what what would I do? Well, if you're reaching out to us, it's usually talk, starting to talk with our partnership team. Um, you know, really, it'll then go through evaluation of, you know, what is the food. Do we have a space for this? Do we think this food translates? Do we think it works? Do we have space in the kitchen that we can pilot this with? Um, And then we're going in and evaluating what is the quality of the food? Will it work for our business from a traveling perspective? What does supply chain look like? Is this a scalable supply chain? Are we going to be able to source the products we need at ease? Nothing upsets an operator when they can't get the food to make the recipes they would need to make. and then from there, you know, we've checked all those boxes. We'd go into a pilot phase, uh, get them into one kitchen and really start seeing what the data says. Um, we actually just did this Monday with a restaurant called Smack Burger. The, they've been, they just celebrated two years of operating in um, the Bay Area. They started as a pop-up. Now they have food trucks. Uh, so we have them in Palo Alto starting this week. Uh, and it's a great opportunity to see how their brand is going to then sort of grow and translate. It opens up a new way for, you know, their audience to have their food seven days a week uh, and could lead into a larger partnership. Cool. So how, how do you set up your kitchen to produce like so many different menu items, so many different cuisines all in one space? It's not too dissimilar to stations on a kitchen. We have a griddles, we have ovens, we have fryers. You know, it's it's really we try to keep the equipment in our kitchens pretty streamlined and it's really thinking about how do we make sure that the dishes can be executed with the equipment that we have at high quality really quickly. That means that, you know, sometimes there can be some really development challenged things to execute. Sometimes this means there's things that don't necessarily work for our business for our kitchens right now. Um, but it's honestly, it's not too dissimilar. There's cold station. There's fryer station, there's an oven station, there's a griddle station. It's it's really not too dissimilar from you know how normal kitchens work. Hmm. And and how long does it take to develop a new menu item? Or does it really just kind of depend? It's pretty dependent. Um I would say for fried chicken menu, we've been working on this for about four months and we I haven't even started training our operations team yet. That's going to be happening in a couple of weeks from now. And then it should be going live middle of December, you know, so some things are weeks, some things are months. What can really expand the timeline is supply chain. You know, using the chicken, for example, we tested anywhere over 20 different types of chicken for, you know, the sandwich and each one acts differently, has different water content, um, you know, uh, adheres to batter differently. So changing your recipes, you know, those are the kind of things that can really make development be pretty exhaustive. Yeah, I would think so. 
Um, so you're up to 11 locations now, right? What Correct. are you planning on going beyond the Bay Area or, or what's what's next for you guys? Yep, we're definitely looking at the next market. Um, can't really say right now what it's going to be. We're still finalizing it between between two. You know, I will say there's definitely a lot of appetite for Southern California. Um, but, you know, mostly over for this year, we're going to continue building our footprint in the Bay Area. We'll probably get to, I would say, by end of year, 16 to 17 locations in the Bay Area between South Bay and Sacramento. Um and then really finalizing our next market strategy for late uh, 2024, early 2025. So you're saying that by the end of, of 2023, you're going to have 16 locations or the end of 2024? Uh, no, end of, end of 2024. Okay, good. Because I was worried about your health if you were going to. No, no, I think my wife anymore. would. Uh, yeah, my wife would think I was going even crazier than I am. Uh, I don't know. It sounds like your job is fun and challenging and cool. I don't want it yeah, it's harder than I want to work. But. Well, I think for some people, you know, it's like, I, you know, we hired someone recently, her name's Ashley. She's our director of uh, culinary development. You know, I think for, you know, for her as an example, it's really can be one of the most exciting jobs in America because, you know, one day you're working with Andy Ricker, next day you're working with, you know, Gonzalo, who's also a James Beard award winning chef. You know, you, you have this opportunity of continuing education that's, yeah, honestly, pretty exciting. Yeah. Okay, cool. Maybe maybe I will apply for a job if I lose this one. <laughs> uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to speak with me, Matt Rudofker. And I wish you a lot of uh, luck and success in the coming year. No, I, I appreciate it. Thank you for uh, hearing our story and where we're going and what we're doing. I'm, I'm excited. Next time I'm in the Bay Area, I'm going to check you out.